Hey guys, welcome to another edition of Crossroads and Culture, where life, ministry, and culture meet. Well, I hope you had a great Christmas, spending time uh, over the holidays with your family and your loved ones. I know for some of you, maybe it was challenging because of the restrictions and the lockdowns, but I do hope you were able to spend some time with those you love um, and that your Christmas was a good one, even with all that has taken place with 2020. And now as we look to 2021, I know we're hopeful, we're praying that this new year is better, it's less difficult. But regardless of what may come, what is before us, uh, it is encouraging and reassuring to know that God is faithful, that the God who's been faithful in the hardships of 2020 will continue to be faithful in 2021 as well. So that is my encouragement, holding on to the hope that we have in Jesus and that he is good and he's gracious and he's faithful. So I hope that's your hope as well. Well, today on this episode, uh, we are going to be talking about the fake news of progressive Christianity. Now, I know when you hear the word progressive, automatically many people go to, oh, this is a political topic. This is not a political topic. Um, This is talking about progressive Christianity, a very false gospel um, and uh, theology that has crept into churches uh, here in the United States and I'm sure around the world as well. And it is a very dangerous theology. It is a false gospel. It's the kind of gospel that Paul warns us about in the letter he wrote to the Galatians. Um, And so I'm going to explain what progressive Christianity thought or theology is in in just a few moments. But I probably will be taking the next two or three podcasts to break this down because this topic is so broad. As a matter of fact, we could take several weeks and talk about progressive Christianity and still not get to the depths of it that we probably need to. But I want you at least to be aware of how do you identify teachings or things that you may hear or read um, that are just a false gospel. It's false teaching. It's heresy. And so that's what we'll be talking about today is the fake news of progressive Christianity. Um, And really, what does it mean to contend for the faith? What does it mean to fight for the faith? And I I think that's something that we have to, as true followers of Jesus, that we must do is to contend for the faith, because there are a lot of, of false doctrines and false teachings that are creeping into the church um, that have a lot of truth um, that is in them, but also lies um, and false teaching. And so uh, I heard it said one time, you could have 99% truth and 1% lie, and it makes it a complete lie. So we need to be able to identify and discern what is true and to contend for the faith. As a matter of fact, in the scriptures in Jude 3, Jude writes this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Again, that is in Jude 3. And there's nothing gentle about contending for the faith. It is an all-out battle. Now, lest anyone think contending for the faith is one person 
versus another. It's not. It is much bigger than that, and much more is at stake than one person winning a debate or not. This is spiritual, and it is the light of truth versus the false light of darkness. And yes, there is such a thing as false light. I mean, the Apostle Paul writes about this in his letter to the church at Corinth. He said, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. You see, Satan is a master at appealing to our human preferences and biases and twisting the truth of Scripture to fit into the context of the narrative of our lived experiences and feelings. As a matter of fact, those few words, narrative and lived experiences and feelings, are all too common language today when it comes to acceptable theology. If a certain biblical truth doesn't fit the narrative we want, we create a new one, one that is much more comfortable, it's soothing to us. Or if a certain command of Scripture doesn't align with our lived experiences and feelings, because it seems unloving and too harsh, then the biblical text is thrown out as being irrelevant or not culturally appropriate for our day and time. So to to acquiesce to this equates to nothing more than false teachings or heresies, which may have the appearance of being loving, gracious, kind, and true, but are nothing more than lies with soft edges. You see, these, these heretical teachings, they're nothing new. They've circulated since the days of the early church, and and not only do they exist within the church today, it seems as though false teaching has become prevalent and embraced. I'm hearing more and more from friends of mine who are pastors, and, and even from those within churches who are hearing um, a gospel that is not is not a biblical gospel. It, it's just false teaching. It's it's culturally relevant, so to speak, but not biblically sound. And the Apostle Paul warned Timothy of this when he wrote, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. Now, Paul wrote that to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. As a result, it's left churches weak and capitulating to more of what is trending in culture rather than submitting to the authority of all of Scripture. That's why Jude encourages true believers to contend for the faith. He said, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. That statement Certain people have crept in unnoticed. That's troubling to me. And it should be, because it's true. We see it happening. What initially crept in secretly now seems to walk through the front door arrogantly and unexamined. We, and by we I'm referring to the church, we've too quickly brought to the intimate table of fellowship those who have all the credentials and appealing characteristics that are often deemed as useful for the church and its mission. For example, the well-known that bring notoriety 
the community leaders that bring visibility, the wealthy that give monetarily. And I'm not saying those who are well-known and those who are community leaders and those who are wealthy aren't welcomed in church. They absolutely are. But what, what seems to have happened and what seems to be happening in churches is that we see those as being useful for the church and its mission. And rather than meeting with them in the, for example, like the living room, if we want to use that phrase, to get to, to really get to know who they are and the condition of their soul, instead of doing that, we just invite them into the table and say, here's your seat, here's your place, because of what we see they bring to the table, their credentials and things that are appealing that, that seem really, really relevant and necessary. But how many... How many conversations have had to be had with those who were thrust into positions of leadership, untested and unexamined, who have not handled accurately the word of truth and the biblical doctrines expressly revealed in the scriptures? Even worse, how many conversations have still yet to be had with those who teach a different gospel? And Jude referred to these when he wrote uh, in the scriptures, he referred to these people within the church as hidden reefs, shepherds feeding themselves rather than feeding the sheep, right? Waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wild waves of the sea, wandering stars. That's what Jude said of them. In other words, these aren't true followers of Jesus or true shepherds. These are charlatans. These are people who are fake. These are people who truly aren't of Christ. Now, the, the fallout of this and what we're seeing in churches and what we're seeing within religious culture, so to speak, is we're seeing a fallout that's resulted in this progressive Christianity that is most certainly progressive, but it is also most certainly not Christian either. So, so when we talk about progressive Christianity, maybe, maybe you've heard the term progressive Christianity, maybe not. So first, let me say that that Christianity is not progressive. I mean, to make such a claim is to, in essence, say that Christian the Christian faith evolves. Well, that's dangerous ground considering that Christ, who is the hope and the subject and the good news of the gospel, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 tells us that. That he, Jesus, is unchanging. And it would stand a reason then that the Christian faith does not evolve because Christ does not evolve. evolve. So, so what, is, what is progressive Christianity and why should it raise concern for us? Well, it's, it's really hard to give a succinct definition of progressive Christianity because there's not a specific confession or creed that progressive Christians rally around. In some ways, it's like, it's like nailing uh, jello to the wall. Although their language can be similar to scriptural and doctrinal language, for example, salvation, communion, baptism, they'll use the same language, the way in which they frame and assign meaning to biblical language and truth are much different than what the whole of Scripture teaches. In essence, it's a cut-and-paste theology, mostly cutting out biblical truth and pasting feel-good and culturally appropriate meology. But in order to be able to recognize some of these areas where progressive Christianity has progressed into outright heresy, I'm going to list a few over and against what Scripture, within the context of all of God's Word, says. Um, and I'll do that over the next few weeks. We're going to deal specifically with the doctrine of salvation in just a few moments. I'm also going to identify those who have become popular 
uh, proclaimers of progressive Christianity. And maybe maybe you've heard some of these uh, pastors or teachers or authors, maybe you've read some of their books. And I'm saying this because I think it's important for you to, to become aware of the language they're using, what they're saying, over and against what Scripture teaches. And that, that to me, has become such an issue in the Christian community, is that we take hook, line, and sinker in what teachers or pastors say, maybe because they have a, a, a platform, or maybe they're a pastor of a large church, or they have a large following on social media, or you've watched them on YouTube, or you've read their books, or whatever, and so you think, well, surely they must know what they're talking about, and we end up swallowing what they teach, or what they write in a book, or what what they're preaching on, or whatever it may be. There are videos that look really cool and hip, and and so we just kind of take it in, and we let it sink in, and what ends up happening is that these distortions of the gospel, these false teachings, begin to take root. And so, so I think it's important that you know some of these leaders in progressive Christianity circles so that you can go back and look at what they're saying over and against the truth of Scripture. Now, to do that, you have to know Scripture, and, and that's another issue. And we're going to talk about that probably in the second or third episode of this uh, these podcasts on progressive Christianity, because one thing that progressive Christians, and I use that term very loosely, one thing they do is they literally um, tear apart the Scriptures, that they keep what is good and helpful and useful for their own personal theology, and they throw out the things that are difficult and the things that they don't want to apply. They just kind of rip through Scripture and, again, cut and paste. So who are some of these that I'm referring to? Well, I'm I'm talking about Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr um, has been on shows like Oprah. He's a mentor to Rob Bell. Um, I mean, he's very, very popular, and even... Even among those who are Christians, he is um, he's read by them. And so Richard Rohr is one. Rob Bell is another. Um, Jen Hatmaker, Brian Zahn, Brian McLaren. Brian McLaren was kind of the one who, who kind of made famous, so to speak, the emergent church or um, uh, the emergent movement years ago. And then also Rachel Held Evans. Uh, Tony Jones is another, Sarah Bessie, Adam Hamilton. These are just a few. Um, And the reason I mention them to you is, again, I want you to research and examine for yourself. I want you to see what they're saying over and against what Scripture teaches. And in order for you to know that, you need to be in the Scriptures and let the Scriptures interpret Scripture. So, So those are just some individuals that I think it'd be important for you to, to be aware of um, and their progressive Christian bent, um, if you will. So what do progressive Christians believe regarding salvation? Well, and there are different aspects of salvation. Again, as I told as I mentioned earlier, trying to define progressive Christianity is challenging, uh, not because it isn't easy to see, because it is easy to see, especially when you look through the lens of Scripture according to Scripture. It's hard to define because there are a variety of distortions when it comes to um, doctrinal issues such as salvation. So, for example, they deny the, the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. And I'll explain what that means in just a few moments. They also believe that everyone will be saved in the end. So that's universalism. Rob Bell um, 
wrote about this when he wrote his book, um, Love Wins, um, denying that the, this, this aspect of the, the reality of hell and that everybody is saved. Um, that's universalism. That's progressive Christian thought. It's false teaching. They also hold to a view of salvation that's more about social justice or activism uh, and identifying with the socially oppressed um, or enlightening those who've been oppressed by traditional Christianity. And they also believe and teach that salvation is being morally good by following the way of Jesus or even other religious leaders and teachers besides Jesus. So as, as you can just as you can see or as, as you're listening to this, there are different even different parts of salvation that they that they view um, that is completely out of line with what Scripture says. And so, again, in this in this podcast and the podcast that will come over the next uh, couple of weeks, um, we'll be looking at what does that look like in the different parts of salvation. So for today, um, as it relates to what progressive Christianity talks about regarding penal substitution atonement um, uh, and the doctrine of salvation. Progressive Christianity, what they do is they attack God as being a vicious and angry God who killed Jesus in an act of what they call cosmic child abuse. Now, if you think that sounds extreme, it should sound extreme because it is. I mean, such a statement is blatantly heretical. There's a British author by the name of Steve Chalk, and he wrote a book called The Lost Message of Jesus, and he rejects the idea that Jesus died for the sins of humanity. And, and, and it, he doesn't reject the idea that Jesus died, but that he died for the sins of humanity. And he went further by referring to such an act, the, the act of Jesus dying, uh, as, quote, cosmic child abuse, end quote. Those are his exact words. Now, although this phrase is unique to Steve Chalk, the errant theological thread that runs through the fabric of progressive Christianity is not. There's another pastor by the name of Brian Zond, who he's the uh, founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. He said this in a debate um, that he had with like two or three other pastors. He said this, quote, The God who is mollified by throwing the virgin in the volcano, or the God who is mollified by his son being nailed to a tree, is not the Abba of Jesus. End quote. He went on to say, here's another quote, but particularly abhorrent is the penal substitutionary atonement theory that turns the father of Jesus into a pagan deity who can only be placated by the barbarism of child sacrifice. And this will not do. It makes God a vindictive monster. Does God really love me or has he simply been paid off? End quote. Musician and host of the Liturgist podcast, Michael Gunger, um, he tweeted this. He said, quote, I would love to hear more artists who sing to God and fewer who include a father murdering a son in that endeavor, end quote. He also wrote or tweeted this um, when he said, quote, that God needed to be appeased with blood is not beautiful, it's horrific. So again, they deny the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. What that phrase means is that, that Jesus substituted himself um, on our behalf and took the wrath of God that God would pour out on sin because God is just. Sin has to be dealt with. And so 
even though you and I as sinners are deserving of death, Jesus took our place on the cross. He was the substitute. And and because of that, we are able to be granted forgiveness of sin if we would turn from sin and turn to Jesus Christ by faith. So so in, in this whole um, doctrinal uh, issue of penal substitutionary atonement, it is Jesus substituting himself, taking our place, um, and carrying the weight of our sin upon himself, enduring the wrath of God so that we might experience the righteousness of God. So what progressive Christians would say is that for God to have done that, that in essence is cosmic child abuse. That, as Brian Zahn said, that it is, it is barbarism. It is child sacrifice. It makes God a vindictive monster that he would do this. But that, that's what makes the gospel beautiful, as I'll mention in just a few moments. For them to say that God is a vindictive monster, I mean, seriously. And that, he, that, that God needed to be appeased with blood is not beautiful, it's horrific. You see, the, the scriptures speak something very different. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. That's the second part of verse 22 in Hebrews chapter 9. You see, th- this is what makes the gospel so beautiful is that Jesus Christ willingly laid down his life for the sin of humanity. Jesus wasn't forced to die on the cross. There was no coercion. I mean, even in the garden, when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, and he was bearing the weight of the sin of the world on himself, he was under the strain. It was even to the point that that he bled um, drops of sweat from his forehead. It, it's a medical term. I believe it's called hematidrosis, where the capillaries in your forehead are under so, such strain that they burst and the blood comes through the, the sweat pores of your forehead, that Jesus was under this weight, under this strain. And he prayed, Father, if there is any way this cup could pass from me, then let it be so. But then he prayed this, but not my will be done, but your will be done. Jesus knew what he was facing. He knew what was ahead of him. And he willingly, willingly laid down his life for the sin of humanity, for your sin and for my sin, for the sin of the world, past, present, and future. He wasn't forced to die on this this cross. As a matter of fact, Jesus said it this way in the Gospel of John, John chapter 10. He said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. That's in John chapter 10, verses 14 through 18. And when you read the words of Jesus, there's nothing vague about that. He's very clear that he is willingly laying down his life for the sins of the world. 
And what makes this gospel so beautiful is not only that Jesus willingly laid down his life for the sin of humanity, but, but to think about this is that holy God would take on flesh in the person of Jesus and willingly substitute his life for the lives of all sinful humanity who deserve the just penalty of death, so that by the shedding of his blood, forgiveness might be granted to those who by faith turn from their sin and turn to Jesus Christ. So in other words, God in Christ absorbed our sin and endured his just wrath poured out on sin so that we might experience his righteousness. That's what's beautiful. That's beautiful. What's horrific is to twist the scriptures in such a way that makes sin look petty and Jesus' sacrifice seem irrelevant. That Jesus, who was God in the flesh, that he would substitute himself for us, that he would die in our place, a death that we deserved because we sinned against a holy God that he willingly laid his life down and took the wrath of God so that we could, by faith and turning to Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, experience God's righteousness, that is just mind-blowing to me. And yet those who hold a progressive Christian ideology, theology that is nothing but a false teaching, would like to say that that's really not what happened. And to do so would make God a monster. To have that kind of view means that they have a very low view of their sin and a very high view of themselves. The truth is, the gospel says that that we were dead in our sin And at the right time, Jesus Christ died on the cross for us so that we could be forgiven and have life. That's beautiful. It's amazing. And so as we look at, over these next few weeks, progressive Christianity and what they think about salvation, as we look at different aspects of salvation, universalism and and salvation that's found in in and identifying with the socially marginalized and the oppressed, and it's about social justice, it's not about personal sin. As we look at the different aspects of salvation, I want to encourage you to to go back to scriptures and read in Romans. Go back and read Romans chapter 5, what Paul talks about, about how sin entered into the world through Adam and that we've all sinned, and what Christ did for us. Read through the the letter of Romans that Paul wrote, and, and you're going to see how desperately we needed a Savior in Jesus. And and then we're going to look at, over the next couple, two, three weeks, um, what do progressive Christians think about the Scriptures? And also, what do they think about sexuality and gender? Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of Crossroads and Culture. And if you found this helpful or encouraging, and you think it might be helpful for someone else that you may know, if you don't mind, please share this on your social media platforms. That would be a great um, help to us as we want more people to learn more about progressive Christianity and other topics that we're going to be doing here on uh, this podcast. So again, thanks for being a part of this podcast episode. I look forward to you joining me next time on Crossroads and Culture.